course, this is uh, Ordinary People with Extraordinary Stories of Birmingham. And my name is Karen Oots, and I'm the curator and historian at Sloss Furnace's National Historic Landmark. And um, I'm going to be addressing some of the voices that um, we have gathered at Sloss Furnace's. And Pam King, and I'm also an adjunct history instructor at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. And Pam King is a professor at Birmingham and has done numerous preservation projects throughout the state of Alabama and has published uh, a little bit of everything. So we're really excited to have Pam here as well. And she is going to, she teaches a class on oral histories and, and her students have gathered some amazing stories. So she is going to literally show you some of the stories that her students have gathered. So we're going to try to give you a taste of Birmingham through voices. Um, and I hope that's, and, and to give you an idea, and when you leave, to understand the significance of oral histories. One of the things I, I do are oral history presentations, and I've done them throughout the South. And I go into these little tiny communities, and we try to bring in at least 20 people from various small cultural institutions. And their voices that they tell us what they're trying to gather are, are just incredibly amazing, especially when you go into Mississippi and Louisiana and places like that. You can just imagine their stories. So anyway, well, um, the title of this particular presentation is A Sense of Place, the African-American Women of Sloss Quarters. And let me tell you a little bit about Sloss Furnace. Sloss Furnaces is the only 20th century blast furnace in the United States that is currently being interpreted and preserved as an industrial museum. And I did bring some information if you would like some when you leave, just a little handout, if you didn't get something last night. Um, and what it did from 1882 until 1970 is produce pig iron, these giant bars of pig iron that basically went into, well, we would sell them to foundries and they would melt them down and use them for cast iron pipe or whatever. So we did this from 1882 until 1970. We were around for a long time. So again, this is a completely intact 32-acre blast furnace site. And today, if you happen to have been there last night, um, you couldn't see much of it because they rent the site out for a Halloween event. And unfortunately, we are also known as one of the most haunted places in the United States. I did make the... Um, the mistake of letting the ghost hunters come out there and the ghost adventures, but, you know, when they wave the dollars in front of you, you sometimes can't resist. But anyway, we do, we have tours, we have a lot of educational programs, we have concerts, uh, we have tons of weddings, believe it or not, and we have these amazing iron pours because we have a metal arts facility. We like to say we're still pouring iron today. And, of course, we offer lectures and outreach programs, and many of these presentations are based on our oral history collection. And what is wonderful about this particular site is that Sloss has been collecting oral histories since it became a National Historic Landmark in the 1980s. And what they did, they partnered with UAB, the UAB History Department. And if I cannot stress enough, you know, utilize your local academic communities because there's always students that want to help. And <clears throat> these graduate students went everywhere, uh, and, you know, finding these retired workers, and they were able to collect some amazing voices. <clears throat> so, excuse me. 
So the majority are from men, and we've also collected some from women who lived in the quarters. And these are very significant voices because they speak to a black working class that for many years was, I guess you could say, pretty much voiceless in the Birmingham community. And, you know, now they're getting out there. I've got a bunch of publications that I want to show you just what you can do with some of these voices in your own communities. And this is one of the ways that we are getting, you know, these voices out there. Okay, again, I'm going to focus on the women today. And I'm going to just kind of tell you a history. This is kind of going to be more like a little history lecture. But keep in mind, I'm doing it through their voices. Okay, I'm going to talk about their voices. And I'm focusing on these women because... While they're raising their kids in less than idyllic surroundings, meaning company towns in a very segregated Birmingham, Alabama, they are at the same time instilling in them a sense of pride, uh, a pride in where they had come from. The majority of these people were African-American sharecroppers that came from the Black Belt area of Alabama. And I'll kind of show you a map and a little bit about that as well. Let me at least kind of... Okay, so this is one of my favorite photos. This is, and when I did this for a, a, a small publication, I called it Going North because that's what they called this. And when you think about living in Birmingham, Alabama, you don't think about going as being north, you know, especially if you're from the, the Midwest like I am. But anyway, so when they came here, they instilled in their kids not only a sense of pride, but a determination and a self-worth that they could do even better. Working in a blast furnace, working in the mines, working on the railroads, yes, indeed, was a step up from being a sharecropper and making 50 cents a week. It was a respectable position. But these women that were raising their kids in the quarters were instilling in them that you can do even better. You can become a professional. You can become a teacher. You can become a doctor. You can become a lawyer. And by doing this, you might be able to make a difference, and you might be able to ignite a change in one of the most segregated cities in the United States. And what's interesting... Is, it, is there a way to dim the lights a little bit? So uh, sure. Um, because Birmingham, Alabama had one of the largest black middle classes of any American city. And you don't think the majority came from this background? They absolutely did, but nobody seems to care. Once you hit that middle class level, who cares about where you came from? Well, we do. Is that better, huh? Okay. Okay, now when people talk about the history of Birmingham, and this is important, and I always talk about this, they either tend to focus on the early industrial years, or they tend to focus on what? the modern civil rights movement. But these, from listening to these oral histories, you realize you can't separate the two because the people who lived in these industrial towns, the people who came out of these industrial towns, they're, they're going to be the heart and soul of the movement. Okay, so I'm going to explain a little bit about the founding of Birmingham. This is a very unusual southern city. It's a city of the New South. It's a city that wasn't even incorporated until 1871. And it is going to be loaded with company housing, company towns, and Sloss Furnaces is going to have one as well. Now, following the end of the Civil War, Alabama's economy, especially in this area, is going 
to change. It's going to change from an agrarian economy more to an industrial economy. And in 1871, you had these prominent Alabamians like Henry DeBard Laban. And DeBard Laban is still a very big name here in Birmingham. There's a DeBard Laban on our board. But, and then James Powell and then James Sloss. And they joined together to form the city of Birmingham. Now, these men want to build in this particular place because they realize that all the minerals needed to make iron and eventually steel could be found within a 30-mile radius. And those three items are um, coal, which we convert into coke, actually, to put in the furnace, limestone, and we have this good, rich red ore down here. And so they wanted to, you know, they realized what Carnegie was doing up north. They wanted to, they realized why they lost the Civil War. Uh, they realized they needed a city of industry. So this is going to be a city of industry. And how many southern industries, I mean, southern cities can, you know, lay claim to that? So, again, one of the guys was James Witherslaw's. Sloss was a North Alabama merchant, he was a railroad man, and he is going to play a very important role in the founding of Birmingham by convincing the L&N Railroad to run rail line through Birmingham. Because if a town or a city wants to grow, especially, this is the only industrial city in the world that doesn't have access to a port. So they are very dependent on rail. So at this time, you know, he went to Nashville, and he, get, he convinced the president of the L&N to run rail line through the Jones Valley area. And this is what this area was called. The more lines, the bigger your town would become. And Sloss had a little tiny railroad of his own. And if you went to Sloss last night, the city furnaces, that's where his line was, and it hooked up with the L&N. Okay, so in 1880, Sloss is going to build Sloss Furnace Company. And it is, this is an old postcard of Sloss Furnaces. It's the second blast furnace in the Birmingham area. Henry de Bardleben is going to build the first. And before long, you've got blast furnaces everywhere. By the 1940s and 50s, there are over 50 blast furnaces in the Birmingham industrial area. And the Birmingham industrial area has kind of long arms. Not everything happened just right here. You know, Gadsden and further on down that, that line of central Alabama, you're going to have mines and all types of industry. Now, not surprising, because of all of this growth, there are going to be thousands of people that just pour into Birmingham in the late 1800s, hence the name the Magic City, because it grows so fast. Now, these people are coming from everywhere, but the majority are coming, they're African Americans, and they are coming from this black belt area of South Alabama. And these people want to get out of this debilitating rural poverty that they were living in. Cotton prices had plummeted. They weren't making any money. Everything from reconstruction that was promised to them was not given to them, no land, no anything. So these are sharecroppers not making any money. And, with, and in the 1880s, with the cotton prices, you know, continually dropping, um, this is when these black farmers decided our own, I guess their only real freedom is to leave and head to the mines, head to the furnaces of Birmingham. One of the women I interviewed, Mary Harris, her ancestors came in the 1800s. Mary Harris was born and raised in the quarters, 
And when her dad retired, they let him stay in the quarters and charged him $2 a month for rent. And this is what Mary Harris told me. She said, the reason we came to Birmingham was because cotton went down to nothing. You couldn't get a real bell of cotton. Cotton was $40 a bell. Everything went to dropping. If you farming, you couldn't pay the landlords. You couldn't pay your bills. So you went north. Again, going north. Now, European, um, okay, these, I'm sorry, I meant to show this. These are sharecroppers. Of course, we've seen these scenes. Primarily, most of these I got from uh, the Birmingham archives, and the majority of these are from the Black Belt area of Alabama, and the one on the right is from Mississippi. But this just, you know, you can imagine the backbreaking type of work this, uh, this was. Okay, so European immigrants. This when I came here 20 years ago, I told my mom, I'm going to be the only Catholic Italian in Birmingham, Alabama. And when I came here, this is like a mini Chicago. There are people from Lebanon, and, and Pam is going to speak to these voices, and Greece, and Italy, and Germany, and Ireland. And I love the picture with the bananas. Um, but European immigrants are also going to migrate to the, this area to work in industry, again, from all over the world. But still, the majority of immigrants are going to be African-American, and since so many were coming with families, uh, the question here is where are they going to live once they come to Birmingham? And again, as Birmingham's population just explodes in the 19th century, you have sloss furnaces, you've got Tennessee coal and iron, you've got Woodward, and some of these are monster, you know, blast furnaces on hundreds of acres. And so all these mines, they're going to build low-cost uh, low housing throughout the Birmingham area. And I've got some pictures of some of these houses. Now, the, the two are, um, the one on the left and one on the top are actually mining camps. One is uh, Winona, and I don't know what the other one is. Uh, it's what? Sango Mines. Well, thank you, Theresa. And then the bottom is uh, Inslee, uh, worse, and you can see the company town. So you can imagine the gritty, smoky, dirty conditions, you know. But these are, these, the photos are just priceless. Company housing served two purposes. It attracted family men. That was huge. It lowered the rate of absenteeism. Uh, single guys were pouring into these, um, you know, to work in the mines. They were coming from all over. And single men just didn't stay at one blast furnace that long. And turnover rate was a big problem in the 1900s, in the early 1900s. Sloss was getting very exasperated by this problem. Family men were more inclined to stay on, to support their families. Company housing also made sure there was extra men in the middle of the night in case there was an emergency because blast furnaces don't shut down. So by the turn of the century, you have 48 African-American houses that had been built next to Sloss. I don't have any pictures of the quarters, but when they were re the road, they were taking a picture. This is Sloss. You know where if you went there last night, you the viaduct over it? Okay, the viaduct's not built. That's the commissary. That's some of the housing. They did a UAV archaeological dig and found the uh, end of the house. This is a, an infirmary. They also found over 5,000 fragments from this dig. 
So by the turn of the century, 48 houses, again, the residents, mainly ex-sharecroppers, called the neighborhood the quarters. These were typical shotgun-style homes, two rooms set on foundation posts, and, and until the 1930s, no indoor plumbing. My great-grandparents lived in shotgun in an Italian area of Kansas City. It was the same thing for them. And later on, the company will provide electricity and, you know, was responsible for doing basic repairs. Now, Sloss Quarters was really not a company town in the strictest sense, meaning it did not, this is just a better picture of the commissary, it did not provide a company school or recreational services like some of the big Fairfield company towns will, but there was a commissary again, and there was uh, a, an infirmary. And when I interviewed these women and men, the doctor they always talked about, whether they were white or black, they all used the same doctor. And this was, doc this was later on, probably Dr. McQueen came in, probably in the, in the 30s. And his name was J.P. McQueen, and Mary Harris told me he not only nursed the injured furnace workers, but he delivered all the babies whites, blacks, and he made frequent house calls. Clarence Dean, who worked at Sloss for 45 years and lived in the quarters, said, when the children were sick, he'd come out there to your house and tend to them. When my oldest child had pneumonia, Dr. McQueen was right there. He delivered my first baby at the house for $15. But again, it was the commissary that proved to be the focal point of life in the quarters. It's a place where people went to hang out, Mary Harris said this is where they went to gossip, and it's like the heart and soul of the community. It was the post office. It handled everything. You could buy everything from tools to furniture to clothing to canned goods. And in the early days, and I should have brought some clacker, workers paid, you know, for stuff in the company store through script. You've heard of mill towns using script. They made this, these coins at Sloss, and it had a stamp, SS, on it. And that's what they used because it was a way to con what? control your workers. Later on in the 40s, the, well, actually in the 30s, Clacker was no more. But families could continue to purchase goods at the uh, commissary on credit. And this is a system that continued to give the company more control of their workers, and it got a lot of people in a lot of trouble, just like credit cards do today. So... Now, despite the drawbacks, and there were plenty, and I'm not going to really focus on a lot of the drawbacks today because I, I heard so many good things, uh, the quarters did provide a relatively cohesive community setting for these men and these families. And you have to understand that these were families that, for the most part, a lot of them came from the same places. They shared the same customs. They shared the same traditions. They shared the same problems, and for many, this was a very safe and um, secure haven. It's like everybody knew everybody else, and everybody watched each other's kids. One luxury that people at Sloss Quarters had, there was a school built for African-American kids around the corner. And this is, it, this is the Thomas School, and it has been preserved. It's still a beautiful building today. So this was huge to these people, the fact that their kids could go to school. 
And Sadie Dean, who's Clarence Dean's wife, she said uh, the following about living in the quarters. She said, Sloss was a good a place as I wanted to live. It was neighborly and friendly. What little recre recreation we had would center on chitlin suppers and quilting bees. We didn't have no problems with those houses as long as we had a lot of newspaper. And I'm like, what are you talking about, Sadie? Well, shotguns are drafty, and they would just put that newspaper in the drafts. But to her, considering what she had... You know, this was her first house. Again, there were all types of neighborhood uh, gatherings. There were watermelon cuttings and barbecues and platter parties where somebody would come and spin records and people would dance. Uh, baseball games. The company provided plots of land for flowers and vegetables. The most popular form of entertainment, though, and what Birmingham is very well known for are Birmingham Black Barons, Willing, uh, Willie Mays came out of here, Satchel Paige played for Industrial Leagues. Most popular form of entertainment, baseball. Sloss Furnaces, a Sipgo, Stockham, everybody had a baseball team. And Clarence Dean said, the of course they had black teams, they had white teams. And Clarence Dean said the following about the black Sloss baseball team. He said they called them the Raggedy Roaches. He said they'd run so and scuffle so and keep their suits torn up. That's why they called them the Raggedy Roaches. Importantly, though, about this, whites came to black baseball games and blacks came to white baseball games. This is truly the first integrated activity. And the families came. The, the you know, black kids would play with the white kids at these places. The administrators would bring clothes. And if anybody in the quarters wanted the clothes, they could have them. I mean, so it was truly the first integrated activity. Now, again, Sloss did not become this cohesive community setting, or I should say the quarters did not become this cohesive community setting because of the men that labored in the furnaces. You really have to give credit to these women um, because they, they were determined, like I said, to make a better life for their families. And when they settled in their new urban environments, they relied on their old ways in a new place, just like your ancestors did. I remember my mom still has parsley that her grandparents brought over from northern Italy. She still has it. She grows it every summer. And so these people did the same thing. The move to Birmingham, I mean, you can imagine the changes for these people. Um, they were accustomed to what? Farm life. Women didn't miss the back-breaking work. You know, and they told me they didn't miss... But they did miss family members, and they missed childhood friends and church activities, and they missed the smells and the sights of rural life. I mean, this is Birmingham in the 1900s. This was like a promotional um, picture because you have sloths in the background just billowing away. But to us today, this is disgusting. To people back then, what did that billowing smoke mean? Money. So, and yeah, it was difficult for fathers and, um, and husbands and the men, you know, laboring in the blast furnace. This was difficult, dangerous work, but they stayed forever. They made a lot of money. Unfortunately, segregation, I, you know, I could do a whole thing just on that. But, um, again, this was dirty and dangerous work, but they came. Women came, and, you know, women came again to live at the base of these furnaces because they knew their kids would have more advantages. But women had demands. And black women living in the country told their husbands that we aren't moving until we have enough, uh, until 
Well, we're not moving to the city unless you can promise that we're going to have a plot of land so we can have a garden because I want to grow vegetables and we want a chicken coop. And so, you know, realize this is a fabulous picture. I mean, you've got this billowing furnace in the background. You've got the company town. But what has that woman got in the front yard there? She's got that cow. So this just, just speaks volumes. And so realizing this desire for land, people like Sloss, as early as the 1880s, were sectioning, sectioning off tracts of land in the quarters for chicken coops, for pig yards, and, you know, as well as individual gardens, so these women could grow the vegetables and fruits that they needed for the recipes. Because when you gather oral history, some of the most wonderful things to talk to people about, food, right, is their traditions, their customs, where food is concerned. Now, I found this uh, painting, and this was done by Mary Henderson Goings. She was uh, an artist who went to New York, was from here. She went down, she was part of the WPA Writers Project and Artist Project, put these people to work. So she came down to Sloss and painted Sloss in the 30s. So this is how we know, no pictures, but what's right next to the company, uh, the, the little shotgun house? It's a barn. Because that's where she kept her chickens. So that was important. But again, where women took a great deal of pride in was in the preparation of meals. And Gertrude Jones, who I interviewed, she was resident of Sloss forever. She came from a huge family and would only let me talk to her. I mean, these are very, you know, because she, just, she said, I want, to get, I want to make sure you get the record straight. You're not going to talk to my brothers or sisters, just to me. But this is what she said when, uh, when it got really bad during the Great Depression. And she remembered the pride her, took, uh, her mom took in cooking, again, even when times were tough. And she said, my mama used to fry up the chickens she raised in our yard, took greens and peas and fried okra and stuff like that, and make cornbread. And sometimes she would have neck bones and pinto beans and turnip greens. We would have it a lot, <clears throat> and other people around there would. If you wanted steak, you couldn't get it no way. So we enjoyed what we had. And Juanita Seltzer is another woman that lived in the quarters. And she recalled her mom cooking dinner for single men. There were a lot of single men who, you know, worked at the quarters. And, you know, they wanted somebody to cook for them. And they would stop by the house in the morning, and they would place their orders. She'd make a lot of barbecue or something. And on the way home that night, they would come and get it. It was a way for her to make some extra money. She also told me she would pack up lunch baskets, and she would put them in a wagon, and her and the kids would drag them in front of the gates of Sloss, and at noon, the workers would come out and buy these meals. Again, it gave them extra money, but it also allowed for Mrs. Seltzer to stay at home. And this was a luxury not often found in the quarters. And although many of the women in the quarters <clears throat> worked as domestic workers for the white over-the-mountain families. Of course, I had to put that in there from the help if you saw the movie. Many, you know, a lot of African-American men said absolutely not. You know what Clarence Dean said? This is what he said to his wife. This is yours here. That on the outside belongs to me. I do all the providing. If there ain't nothing here but a piece of bread, you cook it. He wasn't being mean. You know, he had seen... His grandmother and his mother, you know, labor for years and years doing such backbreaking work in the cotton fields. A lot of women did laundry for um, over the 
uh, mountain white families. And on laundry day, they'd have fires going everywhere and pots. And the superintendent of the quarters in 1929 said, y'all are going to burn this place down. So what they did, uh, they ran a pipe from one of the furnaces into a big barrel in, in the front yard of Mary Harris's house. And her mother hated it because on laundry day, they would come and do their laundry out of this big barrel. <clears throat> but they would also, she said, my mama hated washing day. The neighbors would be wandering in and out of our yard all the day, trampling her fat flowers and such. <clears throat> now, women, again, only worked when they were in desperate need of money. And, of course, the worst time proved to be during the Great Depression, 29 through 39. This was a very stressful time for people in the South. There was a very stressful time for people all the all over the United States. But, you know, Roosevelt did refer to the South as the nation's number one economic problem. But amazingly, Clarence Dean said during the Depression, residents came together just as they had when times were tough, when living in the country. And he told me, he said, the women who lived in the quarters during the Depression would make clothes. And I thought, well, they made clothes for themselves. My wife would sell lots of clothes, and we'd give them to the needy. Okay, it just goes to show you how these people felt. And thank you so much. And during the Depression, people, you know, the women in the quarters, like my grandparents, you know, they can, they preserved, they grew produce, but the people who suffered the most were the blacks living in the South. And they were coming into the cities in droves because these people were suffering from malnutrition, starvation. And Mrs. George Brown said that uh, she remembered hundreds of people fleeing, um, you know, the she, she called it the despair of the country. And this is what she said. If you stayed in the country, you didn't have nothing to eat. The only thing the people in the country had to survive off was the white people. We came to Birmingham because we heard so much about Birmingham. We used to call it going north. My husband walked from Richmond to Selman. He rode a milk truck and worked his way by picking up milk. When we came here, we didn't know anyone. We were absolutely broke. All we had was willpower. So, again, that's very telling from, you know, just from listening to these stories. So what about free time? And then I'll wrap it up real quick here. Just as they had when living in the country where the women of Slost used the majority of their free time, where would you think? Where would African Americans have a voice? Absolutely. African American church life in Birmingham reflected its origins in the rural South. In meaning, city churches held to similar rural doctrine, uh, like what uh, divine judgment, repentance, salvation. Big deal. It was huge. This consistency allowed black families from rural backgrounds to do what? To assimilate a little bit more easily into urban society. You had choirs, all-day singing events. These were very popular, not just for the women of the quarters, but for men and children. All-day singing events brought members from different black churches together, meaning from different black uh, company towns together as well. This is a time to interact. It's a time to share stories, problems, uh, talk about politics, talk about the bosses, economic concerns. Uh, they had dinner on the ground. Um, you know, where everybody ate, 
the Young People had events. New Hope Baptist Church, which is located in Birmingham's West End, can trace its beginnings to a congregation which met in a building owned by Sloss Furnaces. Sloss knew in 1800s he had to set aside one of those houses for a church, and they can trace their origins back to that little, little church. And in 1892, a small group of Sloss residents formed what they called a prayer band, and it grew to become the Community Bible Class and the New Hope Baptist Church. And, I, well, I think we're all aware of, of the impact and the role the church had on these African-American communities because, really, the church's autonomy, if you think about it, it was probably the main factor in its later role as becoming what? Where did everybody meet for the civil rights movement? Churches. It became the backbone for the civil rights movement. It was basically the only institution that was free from white control. It was a haven from prejudice. And why wouldn't it be what the logical center of activism? Of course it would be. In fact, in a Sloss mining camp, we had mines everywhere, and we had company towns in the mines. In a Sloss mining camp near Birmingham, church buildings were used to hold union meetings. Unions were not welcomed in the South. And so this took incredible courage to let a union organizer speak at your Sunday service because there was always the risk of angering, you know, the white management or the local KKK. So it took a lot of courage. Okay, so what happened to Sloss Quarters? Well, times for everyone improved. You had the Great Depression. How did we get out of the Great Depression? World War II. After World War II, you really see the decline of a lot of these houses because African men coming back from war had access to the GI Bill where they could, you know, build in black communities and have, you know, a little home of their own. But again, I just want to leave you with this. You know, I've told you about these voices and the significance, the fact that for the first time, you know, these are industrial workers that for years nobody wanted to hear their voices. It was always different groups. But, and, and I, when I do these oral history presentations, I talk, I'm going to you know, just leave you with this. And it, I want to talk about the last three bullet points. Written history often concentrates on famous people and big events and they tend to miss ordinary people living ordinary lives. And historians are just now focusing on those ordinary lives with big voices. Written history often neglects people on the fringes of society. These people were on the fringes of society for years. But, again, where did the civil rights movement in Birmingham start? Where did Fred Shuttlesworth hold, you know, where did his people come from? These industrial towns, the fringes of society. Okay, the poor, the disabled, ethnic communities. And this is my favorite. Oral history fills the gap and gives voice to history that includes everyone. It gives voice to the voiceless. So, again, this is why when I got to Sloss Furnaces uh, in 2002, i got to tell you the truth. There were no oral histories on women, none. And I was able to collect a few, and we are just beginning. So, But, anyway, thank you all very much. I hope I showed you a little bit of, of early Birmingham life. And... Um, Pam is going to, while Pam is putting her jump drive in and getting ready to go, I am going to just get out of this for you, dear. Could you please do something? Oh, I don't know. At the end, that'd be perfect. While she's getting set up, one thing we've been able to do with oral histories 
if you haven't done something like this, I talked about food. The men always selected recipes, and we took their recipes, and we made a small book out of it called Man Food. Again, what you can do with your voices at your institutions, Johnny Clark uh, was raising a horse. She said she came one day, and she goes, I have a lot of stories to tell, and I interviewed her. She went out on her own and got her voice published by a small public Because I need a few more minutes. Um, was the did the people use the commissary in a segregated manner? In other words, did whites go sometime and blacks? No, whites were uh, good question. Whites would also go in there as well at the same time. Because mm -hmm. I know at Republic Steel they went at different times. Republic Steel was just probably the worst place to work. Oh, okay. Try, I'm, I've uh, put together a PowerPoint, but, but I'm interspersing it with the actual oral interviews. So just kind of hang with me while I switch back and forth a little bit, if that's okay. Um, what I've done, um, Karen gives me a lot of good segues into what I was going to talk about. One thing I'm really interested in uh, as a historian is this transition from uh, in the neighborhoods, in Birmingham neighborhoods, from white to African-American. So I'm real interested in that neighborhood, uh, I mean, in that uh, theme. And, of course, Birmingham or any other city around the country gives you plenty to work with. And it's a subject that hasn't been studied much, at least not hardly any from the people who actually did the moving, either the moving out or the moving in. And so... Um, uh, going along with one of Karen's bullet points at the end there is that we tend to tell the big stories, the historians, you know, you know tell the big theories and big theses. Of course, they never lived any of this, generally. Um, 
And so that's fine, but it ignores the actual participants. And I think what happens in Birmingham or any other city around the country around desegregation in the neighborhoods is that it's the people that are moving in and moving out who are on the front lines of making this thing happen. So you've got these big highfalutin Supreme Court decisions, Brown versus Board, this and that and the other. That's great. But who's going to be responsible for making this thing happen? Well, it's going to be the people on the ground in these neighborhoods. And generally speaking, the people moving in, um, sort of like Karen's going north, this is a great opportunity to move up in the world, and yet it's going to be very difficult. And then for the people moving out, generally the white people, this is a very traumatic experience for them. Because either they've got a better place to go or they don't. And so they're, they're sort of in that crosshairs on the, on the uh, front lines of this thing um, that happens called desegregation. And the second thing, again, going to her bullet points, is that uh, for the civil rights movement, uh, I think it's fair to say there's a good deal of romanitization around big things like this. Oh, it was this or that, it was terrible, it was great, it was this or that. Very romanticized, I think, about these uh, sorts of events. And for the people living it, it was anything but romantic. I think that's fair to say. And so I think it's important to get to the oral histories of the people on the ground desegregating these neighborhoods or leaving the neighborhoods. However, you, they're both all part of the same thing. And so um, one of the neighborhoods I've uh, studied, both from a document, uh, archival uh, point of view, trying to piece together this history of, of desegregating neighborhoods, one of them is a neighborhood called Norwood. And it sits just north of where we were. If you head that way, I think I'm right, I get turned around. But it's just the first neighborhood just north of where we're sitting, okay? Um, it's called Norwood. And um, uh, Norwood is a neighborhood that Yeah, exactly. Um, when you look at the city of Birmingham, you've got Norwood that way. And then if you go south, that's where all of the other upper middle class neighborhoods were. Okay? And so Norwood's going to be the only upper middle class white neighborhood this way, north of town. Okay? And you'll hear some references to that. You can see that when uh, Norwood was built, um, it was a very idyllic community. It had uh, boulevards, it had landscape, it had streetcar. The streetcar um, uh, pavilion there is still there. Um, and it was very idyllic. Of course, that's a postcar, but it still uh, looked a lot like this. And you're going to hear in a couple of the interviews that uh, the, uh, several of the white people who grew up there say it was just a great place to live. It was a great place to live. It was a great place to live. It's almost like they had a script. They said it so many times. The earliest part of Norwood, though, goes back um, to around the turn of the century before that postcard. That postcard would have been um, later than that when it becomes more of a planned neighborhood. But the earliest houses looked like this. And so when I look at a house like this, I see upper middle class, don't you? Um, 
And so this was the beginnings of an early, uh, uh, an early upper middle class neighborhood that wasn't south of town. Now this house sits just blocks from that awful uh, picture that Karen showed us with all of those smoke coming out, puffing and pull, billowing out all over the place. It's not very far from this at all. It's just a matter of blocks, just right over the uh, road there. In the 1910s and 1920, it becomes a planned neighborhood, and Birmingham Realty Company, the most prominent real estate company in Birmingham, lays it out as a planned community and sort of like the city beautiful movement with boulevards and parks. And it was exclusive, of course, to middle, upper middle class white people. To the edges of this neighborhood, though, are going to be um, uh, working class people and poor people. And in Birmingham, I found there's no such thing as segregation in really poor neighborhoods. Black people and white people who were really poor lived across the street from each other, next door to other, each other. Uh, segregation, as we talk about it so much, really is a product of homeowning neighborhoods, middle class neighborhoods. Okay? And so around this neighborhood, as around every other upper middle class or middle class white neighborhood, you've got poor neighborhoods, blacks and whites living there. And you're going to have the same thing here. This is one of the premier houses on, the, uh, on Norwood Boulevard that I just showed you. You can see it's a big house. It's a, almost a grand house. We would call it grand, I guess, upper middle class. And this was built by the people who are going to um, uh, put most of the money into one of the premier hospitals in this same neighborhood, Caraway Hospital. And while I put Caraway Johnson, this is going to be one of the homes. Eventually, all of the homes on the boulevard are going to be left by white families and moved into by African-American families. And so in the late 1970s, um, this family, the Johnson family, who is an African-American family, moves into this uh, house, okay? And again, this is one of the signature pinnacle houses on the boulevard. And so it's going to take a little more time for African-American families with that kind of economic means to get into a house like this. The first exodus, though, from Birmingham, I mean from Norwood, occurs in the 1930s and the early 1940s, and it has nothing to do with race. Why would I say that? What does it have to do with if it doesn't have to do with race? There are other factors in Southern history besides race, huh? What else? No? Well, it has to do with filth that Karen showed us in that slide. It has to do with two things. One is filth, and the second thing that has to be there as well is some place for these middle, upper middle class to move to that's not in filth, right? And so what happens by the 1930s is that the real elite neighborhoods are opening up south of us. And if you went to Vulcan last night, some of you said you went to Vulcan last night, didn't you? Well, if you look at Vulcan and let your eye just go along that ridge by Vulcan either side, you're going to see some mansions, aren't you? And those are the people that owned 
the factories and the mills, the Woodwards, like Karen uh, suggested, the people that own, these are called the iron and steel barons, okay? Um, and so that's where these people from Norwood in the 30s and then the early 40s are going to move to. It's not about race. Why? Because um, uh, segregation is still very much a part. African Americans simply aren't doing that, and they're not going to have the economic means to do it anyway in that period of time. African Americans with means are going to move into segregated middle-class neighborhoods like Smithfield in Birmingham, Titusville a little bit later on, late 40s, okay? So right now, um, the impetus for this has nothing to do with the race. There are no blacks moving into Norwood. It has to do with other things, okay? Okay, now let me see if I can do this. Y'all just bear with me a little bit. Okay. Karen, you can do that every time because it'll take me a second to get on. And that's why, remember when I said over the mountain? Now I'm ready. <laughs> Sorry, can you hear that? You may not be able to. Oh. Put the computer by the mic. Maybe I can put the mic by the computer. The computer will come on. Just come on. You want to pause it? Called it Hamburger Hollow. 
That was what we named it. And we had such a good time. The children, there were so many, about six or eight children. But I guess we just came yeah, okay. for a long time with the call. <laughs>
open Red Mount Brook started building over there. That's when people started leaving Norwood and moved over the mountain. Because it was new and clean, and the houses were new. And they had the money to do it. So. And again, she's talking the 30s. When, that's years. when it started changing. I guess it was about 19, around 1930s, the early 30s, that it started changing. Up until that time, it was, you know, pretty much a wonderful community. But then people started leaving. And I guess it was just because it was, well, you know how pretty it is over the mountain, how beautiful it is, and no factories around or anything to, I know there were several factories out in Tarrant City, and the smoke, you know, was bad, and the trains would pass down there on, uh, near 26th Street, and, uh, with all that black smoke, because they had old steam engines in. And uh, so it was pretty dirty. Okay. that uh, is interesting about all these neighborhoods is that it, it, it there's a um, two or three decades, two decades at least, in between when it was its highest self and uh, the uh, post-Brown versus Ford era. So there's a couple of decades in there of its first transition. And so when the wealthiest people move out, like this woman uh, Martha Keller, um, property values go down for the first time. And in come a new wave of people who had previously not been able to buy into there. And that first wave in the 1930s and 40s, and I find this all over Birmingham, were Greeks, Lebanese, and Italians. So you've got this, um, uh, um, um, you've got these other people who in Birmingham, and I believe, as far as I know, um, all over the country, who, who occupy this middle sector, and these are going to be European immigrants, okay? And in Birmingham, as Karen said, that's the case as well. So the Greeks and Lebanese move into the neighborhood. It's not going to do? Okay. The Greeks and Lebanese move into the neighborhood, and then Brown versus Board of Education. Um, is decided in 1924. The second interview I had planned for you was an, of another white gentleman who lived in the neighborhood until the early 1940s. His family also leaves at the same time. And he says much of the same thing. They moved because they were making money, because it was dirty, and because these new neighborhoods had, had opened up. So they also moved uh, across the mountain. And both of these people, Martha Keller that you saw, and Chervis Isom, who you didn't see, but is uh, about her age, actually younger than she is, 
are still very much devoted to Norwood. They're not the en enraged people I'm talking about. That is for the second exodus. But these folks who moved out in the 30s and 40s are still very devoted to Norwood. They put their money into Norwood. They put programs. They put sweat equity in the neighborhood. They're very much devoted. They go back for class reunions. They still love Norwood. Okay? Um. 1954, Chervis Ison, the second interview I had planned for you, is going to talk about that that's going to begin to change everything. But then he goes on to say uh, that uh, in Birmingham, uh, desegregation doesn't really happen in the neighborhoods until the late 50s, and in Norwood, it's going to be the late 60s and early 70s, 1969 to 1976. So what you've got in Birmingham is the more working class working-class white neighborhoods that are adjacent to black neighborhoods, they're going to be the first ones desegregated. That makes sense, doesn't it? They're going to come right across the street into comparable housing, um, and that's going to be in the late 1950s. And that's where you get this phenomenon called Dynamite Hill. You've all heard of Dynamite Hill, haven't you? Or not? Well, Dynamite Hill is the very famous Birmingham place, a Birmingham phenomenon where all of these, I think there were 62 unsolved bombings in one year. And that's going to be to this area that becomes known as Fountain High, uh, uh, Dynamite Hill. So they're going to move there, and that's going to take about a decade. And then in the second wave, late 1960s, they're going to move into to Norwood. So roughly from 1969 to 1979 is where the Norwood neighborhood becomes desegregated. Well, so by then you've got people uh, in Norwood, a lot of Greeks and Lebanese, but also white uh, people, uh, Anglo people, who uh, are, uh, have economic means, but nothing like the original people that built those fancy houses. But they've still got opportunity. They can go across the mountain, which they do. Okay? So they're going to begin to leave in 1969, 1979. Greeks and Lebanese and other whites of that second wave of, of people. Uh, first wave of, of when that first exodus happens in the 1930s. But they don't have as much means, do they, as that first wave. And so that's where the rage comes in. And some of the interviews talk about it. That's where that rage comes in. They have come, in their minds, to the best neighborhood in the world the top of the line in the 1930s and 40s when they moved in there. Now, uh, uh, people are leaving the neighborhoods, going over the mountain, but they don't have that kind of money. And so they feel themselves forced out, but they can't go to the fancy neighborhoods across the mountain because they don't have the money that the original people had. They've got less money, and they've got to make a more lateral move. And so from their point of view, Everybody around them is moving up, upwardly mobile, but them. African-Americans are upwardly, upwardly mobile, they're moving in. Upwardly mobile whites are moving over the mountain. Everybody but them, and they feel very, very stuck. And from their point of view, they're never, ever going to get to live in a neighborhood as nice as that one again. And so there's this rage that 50 years later, 40 years later, later, is still scary because when, when I got a talk the other day uh, to some people 
that live in a more modest neighborhood over the mountain, and I was talking about this subject. And first of all, I said, anybody from Norwood? <laughs> because those folks get hostile sometimes, so I kind of have to see who my audience is. They get really hostile. Okay, 1969 to 1979, African-Americans are moving into uh, Norwood, and uh, they initially move into the smaller houses, but by the mid-1970s and late-1970s, they're moving into the big houses on the boulevard. And by 1976 uh, to 70, uh, 79, Norwood shifts in that three-year period in, uh, from a 60% uh, African-American to 100% African-American. So this transition happens overnight in some ways like that. It's a very quick thing. Now, one thing about Norwood also is that um, in the early 60s, before, in the early 60s, after Brown versus Ford, the first way that, that those white folks moving in as wealthier whites are moving out are much poorer whites. And these folks are moving in, um, and, and the whites, uh, middle class whites who are still there who have not moved yet, not until the late 1960s. They don't want these poor whites in there, poorer whites to move into their neighborhoods. Okay? And so these folks are white moving in. And yet the middle class white folks organize these committees. And there's some uh, explosions in some cars. And this has nothing to do with race. This is about white people moving in and they're terrified that these white people are going to pull them on property values down. And I found that in other neighborhoods that uh, uh, were middle upper middle class white, and they've got this kind of barren period where poor whites move in, and uh, uh, from the point of view of the middle class white people there, are doing nothing good in their neighborhoods. So they form these articles in the newspapers to get these poor whites out of there. They don't want them there. And then what happens in the late 1960s through the late 1970s is finally middle-class black folks come in, and what do you think happens to the property value? No, they're going to begin to go up. They're going to begin to go up. Okay. Talk about what, because my bet, Yeah. Um, some of the interviews I, I had, and then I, I want to end with a, a Greek interview that I actually was going to read anyway, so that'll work. Uh, but Norwood, if you're in preservation, you may know that uh, gay people are at the forefront of urban revitalization, urban preservation. And that's everywhere, all over the country, definitely in, in Birmingham. And Norwood is one of the best places you can uh, discuss that. And so a gay couple moved in maybe 10 years ago now, and they've been buying up a lot of houses, refurbishing them. And so in Norwood now, you've got majority African-American working class. Good job, but not professional job. Working class. You've got uh, a gay population. You've got mixed race couples uh, all, in, all in Norwood. Still got lots of problems. Um, the last uh, interview, since I guess we need to wrap up, 
is of a Greek family who moved to Norwood in the 1930s. And let me just, do I have time just to read? Okay. It won't take long. Um, he says, this is a, a man named George Stephanos. And uh, I actually had some good slides of the Greek Orthodox Church, but I won't show that. Says my mother moved with her family, her immediate family, to Greece in the fall of 1930. There was a big famine in that area of Russia about that time, and they knew things were going to get bad and worse. So they contacted an uncle who was a doctor in Greece. He wrote piece, a piece of paper to accept them as immigrants to Greece from Russia. So they were moving from Russia to Greece in about 1930. And Russia was still allowing people to leave, especially if they weren't joining the Communist Party. Back after World War II, they quit letting people leave altogether. But that wasn't until the 1940s. But in the 30s, they allowed you to leave if you had the right paperwork. It was Khrushchev in the 60s, and then Brezhnev, I believe, um, uh, who came, and he was the head of KBG. One of my family members had said, um, who had stayed in Russia, disappeared in KGB. He said, um, and it turned out to be Yuri Antropov, who came out of KGB and became premier of Russia, who became a family friend of his. Again, he didn't last that long. He died of some pneumonia or something, some illness within a year or so, but he did make it to the Kremlin. And I remember even as a child, my aunts would scuttlebutt him and talking on the phone, informing him of the big thing they just got reminded of with him coming into this office, to his office. I don't remember if we ever told you. Did we tell you or you know? She was saying, I remember him vaguely, this uh, relative, but I remember I was always out of the house. People kept interrupting us when we'd see each other in the hallway or something. And I was never aware of the intentions of the gentleman. So that a pretty good look coup, C-O-U-P, that the family pulled on her. My student interviewer said, quite successful, I would say. He says, but going back even prior years to that, my mother, when she was like, like six or seven, her grandfather, being a man, you know, of higher means, was evidently a, I don't know, a, but a close friend of the Tsar. And my student interviewer said, Tsar Nicholas? And he says, yeah. He said, we had what was called a summer, he had what was called a summer palace, which I think today in modern times is a museum. Back after the communists took over, they turned the summer palace into an employee's resort of some sort where you can fly to go take a vacation at the Tsar's palace at Yalta. And now I believe it's more of a museum. Mother, I remember, tells of an incident where she and I think her closest siblings were playing in grandfather's mansion and they came running through the study and giggling and playing tag, causing some kind of mischief. And the grandfather stopped them in their tracks and said, can't you tell we have a guest here? Where are your manners? Please leave the room immediately. And the czar stood up and turned to me and said, Are these your granddaughters? I would like to meet them. So grandfather motioned them over, and they did their little 19th century curtsy with their dresses extended sideways, and the czar patted their heads and squeaked their cheek or something. I can't remember what mama said happened, but you know, the czar said, What lovely children, blah, blah, blah. And the grandfather excused them, and off they went to play. They didn't know the significance of the man they just met. And so my student interviewer writes on this. He's not supposed to be editorializing, but he writes, completely oblivious. 
I'll think about that in a minute, completely in awe. He writes that. And so, just in this one oral interview of a Greek family in Birmingham, you make all these fascinating connections to this family and the Tsar, Tsar Nicholas of Russia. And just in this one interview, you can weave it down, and he, his family does move to Norwood in the late 1940s. Okay. Well, I'm sorry about the equipment. We hope you enjoyed at least learning a little bit about it. We do have Teresa, do you want to say something real quickly before? Um, I'll just let her introduce herself. Okay. <laughs> morning, everybody. We're glad to have you here, Bernie. I'm New York from Birmingham. So you're all from other places. Well, my connection to this wonderful team, and they have great primary resources, is that I was project director for the Teaching American History Grant Project. And they were the historians among the students. And they brought to our group wonderful primary sources and oral histories that truly made our grant come alive and made a significant difference in the teaching of American history in the schools. So your institutions, I don't know what institutions you represent, but we, the representatives from the university, Slosperances, Red Mountain Park, those were great institutions. So I'm, we as teachers really appreciate your work and what you bring to the table in improving instruction in our schools. So thank you so much for sharing with them. Listen to that great story. <laughs> Thank you. And all. Teresa was the director of the Teaching American History uh, grant that we participated in for nine years with uh, yeah, Teresa. And we gave, uh, you know, inner city school teachers who went on trips and, I mean, we did do other things than play. But. Well, in fact, we actually yeah. found our story. We found I our story so hard. Our history was connected. Our personal history, mm -hmm. uh, we found it in the local histories that were presented. Right. Exactly. Such a powerful project. And if anybody wants any 